0: and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, senior features and analysis writer. And I'm Emily Burt, editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quickfire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. This week, we'll be interviewing Martha Awajobi, chief executive of the anti-racism consultancy JMB Consulting, about what progress the sector has made on tackling racism and racial discrimination over the past couple of years. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we have a story involving Picasso, James Bond, and charity. Uh, but first, I think we probably ought to acknowledge that this is the first time that you and I have recorded the podcast in, in the, the same, same room, room. Um, since what, like February twenty twenty? Yeah, since since the yeah. January twenty twenty podcast. When we uh, started our opening pattern by joking about COVID and then everything yeah. went horribly wrong. Oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah. Um, it's very weird. I keep, I keep remembering I have to look at you yes. rather than just at my computer screen. It's, uh, and yeah. we're sharing a mic. I, <laughs> yeah. know, it's kind of classic high-tech stuff. They did have a ladder in this studio last week and I almost felt like I needed to put the ladder up and sit underneath it just to <laughs> make myself feel comfortable. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, we're because of certain issues with the technology. We are sat kind of very, very close to each other, having yeah not been in the same room at any point during these podcast recordings. It's um, fine, but yeah, it's great. We're making it work. We yeah. are indeed. Two years ago, Martha Awajabi quit their job as a fundraiser and launched JMB Consulting. The consultancy aims to help the charity sector reimagine what leadership looks and behaves like, how the sector responds to racism, and how income is generated among charities. Its values-led consultants help organisations to recruit talented leaders of colour and to create anti-racist cultures that will then nurture those leaders. Martha also launched BAME Online, an annual virtual conference which explores charities and fundraising through an anti-racist lens. We sat down with them to chat about how the past couple of years have gone and whether the charity sector is making any progress on the issue of racism. Martha, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for being here.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's always really awkward hearing an introduction and then being like, oh, wow, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so as as we've
0: said, the, the consultancy that you started focuses very much on anti-racism work. What prompted you to start it and to have that focus?
1: Yeah, um, good question. Uh, I noticed in the introduction you said that I, I quit fundraising. I didn't actually quit fundraising. I just a series of unfortunate events happened where i got a new job just before the pandemic hit and I'd got a job at a theatre. <gasps> oh my God. I know, I know. I was so excited. I was joining the Roundhouse in Camden. I was literally like, this is the coolest. I thought this was the coolest job I'd ever have. I now have the coolest job in the whole world. But I was like, this is going to be so amazing. And then the pandemic happened. Um, so it wasn't really a plan at all. What actually happened was I was an organiser at Charity So White at the time um I was you know working with a lot of leaders to get them to even admit that racism existed um that was very hard so I started to understand that people didn't really understand what racism was they were not confident talking about it they thought that even saying that racism existed was some admission of like personal fault you know so I wasn't really intending to kind of start this anti-racism consultancy I'd actually intended to set up a corporate fundraising consultancy because that's the type of fundraising that I did so I had an idea in mind based on my, my own skills and experiences, but the charity sector had a very different plan for me, uh, which I appreciate actually in hindsight, um, and I looked back on some of my earlier contracts to kind of try and weave a bit of a narrative together for this. Um, my first paycheck at JMB Consulting was for BAME Online. Amazing. Uh, right? <laughs> so it was working with uh, Fundraising Everywhere to kind of build the first uh, fundraising conference by and for people of colour in the charity sector. Yeah, it was all kind of by accident. I was doing a little bit of kind of fundraising strategy consultancy with in partnership with Unbound Philanthropy. Did the conference, did a little bit of recruitment with Cadence Partners, I was recruiting for the directors and uh, board members at Comic Relief quite successfully. And then Shelter got in touch with me to run like a private BAME online session, like focus on anti-racism in uh, homelessness.
0: And it kind of all went from there. And I think what you've said there is just so interesting, talking about the fact that you started out trying to help leaders recognise racism within the sector and how uncomfortable um, they felt, that that sort of admission of personal guilt that I think so many white people carry with them, those associations. Um, and what a two years to be doing this work? Because, of course, we're coming up now to the two-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Um, which happened at the end of May 2020. And since then, we have seen so much discussion about racism and diversity within the sector. And especially in those months after May 2020, we saw great swathes of charities publishing statements of solidarity with Black Lives Matter, um, asserting their commitments to fighting racism as someone who has... Um, as the way you did, found your way into this space and trying to help educate and build the sector's uh, understanding of this and to make them better. Do you think the sector is a more actively anti-racist place than it was two years ago? Uh, Has anything really changed?
1: That's a really tough question, you know, because it really depends on who you ask. I would say yes and I would say no. Um, I would say that for most organisations, writing that statement was them- doing their anti-racist work. So lots of them thought that that was enough. For me, I found all those statements completely unnecessary. Um, I don't think any of them needed to happen. What needed to happen was people needed to dismantle white supremacy in their organisations. It felt like a kind of era of kind of self-flagellation. And I I think actually those, those statements and the way that we were talking about uh, racism at that time really was kind of centering whiteness and like centering white guilt again I'm not really thinking about okay we've admitted this like what do we do next so I'd say I'd say some organizations really have changed and some leaders have really taken taken hold of this work I think it's difficult for me to see because people come to me because they want to do this work, you know, so I'm like, yay, everybody's changing, yeah, no, things sure. are going really well. And then you see, you know, uh, reports from ActionAIDS a couple months ago saying that, you know, the systemic racism happening within their organisations. Um, you see reports from, you know, NHS trusts saying that, you know, systemic racism is happening. I think people are more able to engage in the idea of doing anti-racist work The actual, like, what it means to do anti-racist work, like, I haven't even figured that out yet myself. Uh, So I think, yeah, we have a bit of engagement in conversation. We have a little bit of engagement in um, the idea that their organisation might be racist in some kind of way. And I don't think leaders really kind of have grasped what it really means to dismantle white supremacy in their organisation and how much that means looking at power. Um, I think people think it's about doing more recruitment, bringing more people of colour into their organisations, but it's about how decisions are made, how the like kind of like the genealogy of the organisation. Like, where did this organisation come from? Like, how has it got all of this money? Like, how did it end up being all led by white people? And those are just the basic questions, like not even like the kind of deep fundamental questions that we need to be asking ourselves. So I think that actually with enough pushing, we'll get there. Um, I do, like, I'm, I'm an optimist, like, I wouldn't be doing this work if I thought it, we weren't going to get there. Um, but I don't think that, I don't think leaders have, or anybody really, like, can imagine um, a world or an organisation structured differently from what we understand now. And I think particularly when we think about, okay, how do we measure the success of anti-racist work? people were using Eurocentric measures they're using the same measures that their racist organization had kind of put together what we're trying to do is we're trying to white supremacy our way out of white supremacy but with like really deep learning and reflection I see a lot of leaders realizing that actually like this is going beyond like you know the kind of nice statements and you know bringing in more diverse recruitment Um, this is one of some of the biggest existential questions of our time.
0: I was sort of reading uh, your mission statement that you sort of set out when you set up uh, JMB Consulting, and you were talking about, you described the sector as severely lacking imagination. And I wondered, like, what did you mean by that? And and how can that issue be resolved?
1: God, I mean, like, so many things by it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I mean... We have a sector that actually like sees itself as like quite radical and quite revolutionary, right? So there's that kind of like absolute like denial of the truth there. So we've got this self a sector that sees itself as a social justice se- a justice sector that's actually there to advocate for oppressed people. But all our decision making tables, like particularly boards are upper middle class, cis, het, non-disabled white people, right? They are more concerned with preserving the status quo than with liberation for oppressed people. And it's not even like, it's like, how could they not be, like how could a group full of privileged white people like really have the interest of like oppressed people at mind because if they did, they wouldn't be there. Um, And I joined the charity sector to make a difference for my community, right? I am black, I'm queer, I'm gender non-conforming, right? And people who are black, queer, trans, working class, disabled people, they bear the brunt of social inequality and we all know that. And I even look back to like when I started out in my first kind of like proper in-house charity fundraising role, I worked as a fundraising administrator in a small, in quite a large children's charity in 2015. And I think everyone in my office was straight white presenting middle class. And I just thought, oh my God, what the hell is this? This like level of groupthink. And I had one colleague who would like repeatedly let me know what my place was in this organization. And I remember joining that organization, fresh faced, excited, full of ideas, full of energy. And I left miserable, like exhausted, disengaged, demoralized. And I think that happens to so many innovators like black women and gender non-conforming people in the charity sector. So imagine that kind of composition of people actually trying to do anti-racism work, like it's just not gonna happen. Like, and, and real anti-racism work requires us to be dreamers, And, you know, this this stuff sounds silly, like, because the limits of our imagination is set by white supremacy. Like, you can't dream, you can't be emotional, you must be objective, you must be able to quantify absolutely everything. Um, But we need to imagine a different world to the one that we exist in now. And I mentioned, you know, different metrics. Like, that's a really big thing for me. Like, what does it mean to measure success? When we only know success through, like, the eyes of, like, European imperialism, really, um, it's always more growth higher fundraising targets, more, more, more. And I've been kind of talking quite a lot and reflecting a lot on uh, the process of decolonization by this um, Hawaiian activist called Poka Lanewe who talks about uh, decolonization taking five stages, The first is rediscovery um, and recovery, which is all about kind of learning and unlearning the truth of colonisation, like actually understanding like what, you know, Europeans did, (laughs) the the horrible, like ugly, violent truth of it all. Like really dedicating yourself to learning that. Um, The second stage is mourning, um, which is like a social process that we're supposed to all go through together. And I think people like to avoid those feelings of anger and grief, like white people and people of colour, But we know that any healing process, like you have to uncover those emotions, right? And then make the connection between like anger and actually like a longing for a different world. And then arguably the most important stage is dreaming, which is the third stage. And it's all, you know, there's so many kind of, you know, activists who talk about radical imagination and this is it. It's exploring this in this human impulse to move towards freedom, to move away from white supremacy. It's about kind of decolonizing your mind but mainly about bringing new ideas to the table instead of ideas that were introduced by colonial manufacturers and I think this is so crucial to you know our ability to do anything really um, to dismantle racism. It's like really giving us those the, the space to dream like what does a world that hasn't been written by the master's tools that isn't, you know, decided by white supremacy, by imperialism. What does that look like? How can we begin to commit, right? And committing is the fourth stage. So commitment is the fourth stage. And this is what all these statements, right, that everyone was doing in 2020 was all about. Committing when they hadn't done, they don't know what they're committing to. They haven't really thought about like what, you know, what could come next. Mm. Just a bunch of statements saying, you know, we're an anti-racist organisation now without doing any of the work. So you have your stage four, which is your commitment, and then your stage five is action, right? And we have organisations who have gone to stage four and five without doing any of the necessary work ahead of time to like really build something worth- worthwhile, to like really understand like what it means to, to build anti-racist work. And I think that's why people are more comfortable engaging in concepts like equality, diversity and inclusion rather than talking about racism, imperialism, white supremacy and decolonisation. The former doesn't sound so scary, and the former doesn't require us to dream at all. Um, It doesn't actually require us to dismantle any systems whatsoever. It helps helps us to understand how do we bring people into systems that are already quite harmful, how do we make them white supremacy light. You think about the charity sector and the level of urgency, you know, we've got to do this thing now, you know, it's like everybody is burnt out. Where do you find time to dream? Where do you find time to imagine? If you're constantly chasing like income targets or like you're constantly, you know, fighting fires, um, the problems that we're facing will still be here if we spent a day dreaming.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, we (laughs) spent a little bit
1: of time dreaming. Um, And that's what I mean when I say the sector doesn't have any imagination because we don't make time for it. We kind of have a radical idea that we want things to be different. And then we do exactly the same thing that we've always done. (laughs) <laughs> and think the intention in no, alone is enough to make change and intention is nothing.
0: And so um, this is the third year that BAME Online will run. Extraordinary. Um, is this what you were looking to do with it? Were you creating a space for dreaming when you launched BAME Online?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Again, like it, every, everyone thinks I had some kind of master plan, Sure, but I <laughs> really didn't. And um, I think in retrospect, I think I thought BAME Online was a sp- space for dreaming until I had like a lot of time to reflect. I mean, if I we kind of like think about how it started, you know, it was in a place of like real urgency again, right, you know, we'd heard from the Ubele Initiative that nine out of 10 black and brown led organizations were set to close without urgent funding investment. We knew that something needed to be happening. Um, Charity So White was campaigning for um funders to ring fence a certain amount of money to uh, black and brown led organizations it was all you know bogged down in bureaucracy everything was taking forever uh, something needed to be done so even like i went into bame online being like this is a space of urgency like we need to kind of move quickly with these organizations need to kind of get the skills that that um that they need to be able to do brilliant org- uh, brilliant fundraising so i don't think in the first instance, like it really was a space for dreaming. I think as I've, as I've reflected and then given myself actually more time to dream, like it has become that. But like for me, like BAME online is my process of decolonisation. Like it's like I'm showing it to the sector. I didn't realise right until I started like really reflecting on that sta- those stages that I was telling you about previously. So the first year was all about mourning and grieving. Like, you know, George Floyd had been murdered. You know, we our communities were being decimated by COVID-19, right? Mm. And it was a space for me to grieve and to heal and to be held by other people of color in the sector, right? Like actually, like it was very much about me, me, me. <laughs> <laughs> if I look back yeah. on it, like, and, and I think, you know, cause my experience is shared with so many other people, they could see themselves in it right but actually like it was quite it was quite about about me I wanted to be held by people in the sector like I didn't know where to go I didn't know how to you know build a better world like I, I felt absolutely lost and I felt like that was like a, it was a, I was like being held like a baby by the other speakers that's what it felt like for me um you know, I've I've moved on a little bit since then. I think I've actually like massively matured, like in a way that I just really wasn't expecting in the last two years. Um, and this third year is the space for dreaming. So I've been really, really, really kind like, conscious of like talking a lot about the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. I've got two sessions where we focus on that. Um, one with Derek Bader, I hope Derek Bader will, I'm like saying that he's already agreed to join this session, I've asked him <laughs> <laughs> um, and Noah Girding from uh, USA and Fazana Khan as well talking about like what does it really mean to do anti-racist work when we live in white supremacy. This conference is really about kind of like ma- making that space to to dream about like how how do we measure things differently and i don't think we'll get to any of the, the answers uh in in the session but actually it, yeah i'm i'm really i'm really looking forward to this and when is that happening this year it is on the 28th of july um 2022 it's from i think 12 until 5:30 uh tickets are pay what you can um, which is really important for me uh, because Learning should be free, especially kind of learning about, you know, anti-racism. I think so many conferences price people of colour out, uh, price disabled people out, people who don't live in London. So we've made it so that anybody can come regardless of what their training budget is. Obviously, if you have lots of money, why not pay for someone who doesn't have as much money? Uh, (laughs) That's kind of how it works. We have richer people paying for people who don't have as much access to wealth um and yeah the content's available for 30 days later so you don't even have to be available on the day um to get all the goodies
0: fantastic and we will of course pop some details of that in the show notes as well when this episode airs absolutely um you mentioned there that kind of there have been certain things that you've kind of you've learned or that you've come across during the last couple of years that have really blown your mind like what have some of those surprises been
1: oh okay i mean i my mind is like blown on a daily basis. Like, you <laughs> <not, laughs> sure. cannot do this work without like constantly being like mind blown. Some of like the learning that I've done, like about racism in the last two years, has like really kind of blown my mind. I mean, I've teamed up, I've created a, a, a new piece of work called BAME Online Scholar. I've teamed up with um, an academic called Khadija Diskin, who I really love her political analysis um to like really break down like the history of race and actually like you can pinpoint it to like a, a certain dec- decade as to when like whiteness began and like really like understanding all of that stuff I think I knew that race was a social construct but actually like under unpacking like what that actually means like you know race being a technology of power like how race is used to decide who has and who doesn't that's been like I guess like deepening my learning has been like really really important Um, and I think you know people thought people think I know absolutely everything about race and the more I learn the more I realize I know absolutely nothing like (laughs) nothing at all like you can never stop learning about it it means something different across you know different different contexts I think you know I talk a lot about why it's difficult to apply concepts like intersectionality from a a USA perspective to a UK perspective, because race means something totally different here, you know, and actually like, understanding my my own context has been really helpful. There's some amazing kind of scholarship from the UK because we spend too much time talking about the USA um, when it comes to racism. And that's part of the function of racism, I think. it keeps us looking over there and saying, they're really bad. (laughs) and it's like we were them we made them um when it comes to the charity sector i say what's been a big surprise for me is the lack of racial literacy i guess however in my experience that's really just at leadership level like junior staff in organizations are like so switched on uh they're really informed they really want to take on board a lot a lot of this work i'm generalizing here obviously um but i often find that you know i'm brought in as a consultant um and I just end up saying exactly the same things that junior members of staff have been saying all this time, but haven't really been listened to. They already know what needs to be done. They just need their leadership teams and boards to get the hell out of the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really? It really is. But I guess for me, the biggest surprise is that people really want to do this. They really want to do this.
0: And it's brilliant to hear that there are organisations out there who are really committing to that change journey. Um, and hopefully we will see this within the wider sector as well. And people will start to really make those commitments and recognize the urgency rather than, as you say, going straight to stage four and stage five without any of that previous work. Um, Rebecca recently uh, put together a really interesting feature looking at class in the sector. and um, Which I
1: read and I thought was really amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much.
0: Um, but when I was editing it, I was particularly struck by a quote from Wanda Wiporska who um, was uh, featured in the piece. And she said, you know, her issue with the sector is that it can take a quite a fatty approach to resolving structural discrimination and structural inequality so she was saying you know um, we resolve to do better for a while and then it just kind of goes down the agenda and you can see it happening with gender and you you know two years ago it was all about race and then you risk it sliding down the agenda and, and you can kind of come into this pattern of thinking okay so what are we going to address next we've we've ticked the box on this and now we move on Um, So I guess my final question to you is how, as a sector, do we maintain that focus and and really think about just not letting things slide, not going to stages four and five, and then just considering the matter resolved? What do you need to do to keep that energy high?
1: I mean, I'll start by saying I do not have an answer for that, really. A
0: nice, easy one to finish on, yeah.
1: Yeah. I know. I mean, I'm like, it's easy. You should care about it because I care about it, right? Um, But so I mentioned um, Khadija, who I work with, um, a decolonial scholar. And she says something that's stuck with me like so heavily She says race is gender, race is sexuality, race is disability, race is class, right? And actually just the very fact that we're trying to untangle these things from each other means that we've still got that quite white supremacist divide and conquer mentality to these different forms of oppression. You know, I am a queer, gender non-conforming, you know, black person. All of those things are happening at once. They're not separate experiences, you know. My experience of gender is my experience of race. Um, So I think if you really understand or take the time to understand the interconnectedness of different forms of oppression, how, you know, transphobia is rooted in white supremacy, right, in the kind of like history of imperialism and the spread of kind of transphobic and homophobic laws through the colonies in like the 1830s, like, you can't do one without doing the other. And I know people talk about intersectionality all the time and, you know, it's a big buzzword. Uh, maybe we need different kinds of words <laughs> rather than just intersectionality. Like, and I think that's kind of started to miss the point. That's become a way of like detracting from different oppressions rather than like adding things together. I personally don't think we can go back, right? Um, I see more and more uh, black people and people of color refusing to be silenced, using social media to their advantage. Uh, advantage leaking reports right which I'm absolutely here for (laughs) (laughs) demanding change
0: so so are we we.
1: I'm totally here for it you know like every time like I've kept you know a, a leaked report comes out I'm like yes like of course because you know institutions will use everything to silence people you know to kind of uh, keep their reputations intact. In but I think there's no going back from here. Either get on board or get out of the way. I'm very hopeful. Um, I feel like I'm trailing off in all these sentences, but it's cause, I, it's cause I don't like have an answer, but I have a lot of hope. <laughs> I feel like that's good enough.
0: That seems like a good place to leave it, doesn't it? Absolutely, Martha, thank you so, so much for coming and chatting to us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been really great.
0: Each week, as ever, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we've spotted in the sector. So, as well as being the first ever James Bond, it turns out the late actor Sean Connery was also something of an art lover. Um, in particular, he owned a Picasso painting, and I'm going to reveal my terrible French here, Bust uh, d'homme dans en Cadre, which was painted in 1969, which is valued at £15 million. So I think that was a very um, passable French accent, but I do also think that we Missy. should be calling it a Picasso. Picasso. a Picasso. a, pe- <laughs> a Uh for the duration of this this bulletin the Picasso. we have been wandering around the office doing yes uh- <laughs> anyway uh, Connery's family announced plans to sell the Picasso to set up a philanthropist <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect don't apologise carry on they plan to sell the painting to set up a philanthropic trust, which he requested to be established in his name after his death. The actor bought the painting a few years before his death, aged 90 in October 2020. And according to The Times, the painting has been described as one of the finest and most striking of the artist's paintings from the last decade of his life. The Sean Connery Philanthropic Fund will give money to good causes in Scotland, where Connery was from, and the Bahamas, where he lived for more than 30 years. So listeners in Scotland, take note, there may be funding available from this trust in the near future. And of course, the same goes for any charities in the Bahamas should you be listening to us today. I mean, absolutely. And if we do have any listeners in the Bahamas, please do give us a wave digitally. Let us know you're there. And, you know, maybe we'll come and record an episode on location. I would like to record an episode from the shark swimming pool that featured in Thunderball yeah. uh, in the 1960s James Bond film, which was in the Bahamas. OK, there. OK, absolutely. Uh, So, uh, Stefan Connery, who is Connery's stepson, said his family were, quote, working to create a fund that will offer support to organisations that reflect Sean's interests and passions and serve to keep his legacy of integrity, opportunity and effectiveness alive. Uh, The painting will be sold at Christie's uh, 20th and 21st century art sale in Hong Kong on May the 26th. Uh, So, yeah, if you happen to be in Hong Kong and have a spare 15 million knocking around, like maybe. It's going to go to Elon Musk, isn't it? What a disaster. Oh, God. (laughs) This is supposed to be the good news bulletin, Emily. This is supposed to be the good news bulletin. (laughs) It is the good news bulletin. It's not going to go to Elon Musk. Well, maybe it will, but the money will at least go to charity, I suppose. So, that is something. Absolutely. uh, That is something. we will be back with another episode soon so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then I'm Emily Burt and I'm Rebecca Cooney thank you to our guest Martha Awajabi and of course our wonderful producer Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio we'll see you next week